I had a wonderful couple of weeks recently of study break where during the week I have tried to focus on the upcoming messages for the rest of 2012 into 2013. And uh, planned a lot and prayed a lot and studied a lot and feel really excited about the direction that God is taking us. And one of the series that I came up with is going to be in October. And uh, I've entitled it, Letters to the Candidates. Now, I want you to imagine what, would it, what it would be like if you had the opportunity to sit down and write a personal note to each of the presidential candidates, to two of them. And you knew that they were going to read it. What would you write them? More importantly, what would God write to them? We're going to talk about that uh, in four uh, messages this October. What would God say to those candidates who want to lead our country? Now, speaking of sermon series and politics for a moment, we are in our summer series, Gobsmack, which means to be astounded or to be surprised. And I want to tell you something. I think this fall, we're going to be very gobsmacked by what happens in this political race. Already, the lines are being drawn. People are choosing sides, and the analysts tell us it's going to be one of the most brutal, vicious elections that we've had in U.S. history and perhaps one of the most important. I'm going to ask you a question. On which side of the line are you standing? Or are you going to stand? That was the question that was put before Jesus in our passage this weekend. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Some of you are getting really nervous, I can tell here, and I, I'm going to guess over at 95th because you're thinking, good grief, is he going to go into politics now? No, hang in there, all right. I think you'll see where I'm going, all right? Luke chapter 13, and uh, we'll be there in just a moment. I want to encourage you at 95th to join us Sunday at 2 o'clock if you're available. We've got a good friend of mine who's going to be here. His name is Qatar Muscovy. He is a guide friend of mine in Israel. He does the guiding for me. He's a scholar. And uh, we're going to talk together uh, about what's going on in Israel. And you're going to have an overview about 20 minutes from him where he's going to give us an understanding of the land of Israel and how the Gospels, the whole Bible, plays into it. It'll be very insightful, help you in your own reading of the Bible and understanding what's taking place there. I'm going to do a little bit of prophecy, and then we'll do a Q&A time, all right? So uh, all of you, of course, here at Hopson are welcome, but just wanted to give a shout-out to 95th. All right, Luke chapter 13, hopefully you had a chance to get your iPads, your iPods, or if you are old-fashioned like I am sometimes, your Bible is open to Luke chapter 13. Here's what it says. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Now, this isn't put to Jesus necessarily as a question, but it is laid out there for him as a situation, and the expectation is that he's going to comment on it. But it's also kind of a trap for Jesus as well. 
here's the situation, and we don't know clearly exactly what these men were referring to historically speaking, but we have a pretty good idea from history what the situation was. See, Pilate was the, was the governor that Rome had put in charge of what we think of as Israel. And we know from history that about this time, he had wanted to build an aqueduct, bringing fresh water into Jerusalem from about 30 miles away, but he lacked the money. So what he did is he went and took money out of the temple treasury in order to fund the aqueduct. And as you can imagine, that did not sit well with the people. That angered the people. They were already upset that Rome was governing them, but the whole mindset of taking that money out like that really caused a lot of pressure. And Pilate knew it. And he was afraid of an insurrection, of revolts. So he sent some of his soldiers undercover, we know this is from history, into Jerusalem to make sure there were no mobs that were gathering, no revolts that were starting. And they were ordered, if they saw anything like that, to deal with it harshly, to deal with it firmly. Well, the soldiers went too far. And they actually killed some of the Jews from the area of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, who had come to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices there at the temple. And so in that sense, their blood was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. Now, Jesus, what do you think about that? We need a political statement from you. Now, if Jesus says, ah, oh, those Romans, Pilate, miserable Oh, I wish they weren't in charge. They shouldn't be in charge. My father's going to deal with them. Then, on the one hand, some of the folks will be excited about that because they'll feel like Jesus is for the nation. But on the other hand, Jesus' enemies can then take that and go to the Roman officials and say, Look, this guy, he's leading a revolt. He's leading a revolt against Rome itself. You've got to arrest him. You've got to deal with him. On the other hand, if Jesus is indifferent, if he says very little, then the people are going to spread the rumors that Jesus doesn't really care about the nation. He really doesn't value the people at all. What is Jesus going to do? It seems like he's trapped either way he goes. But you know, one of the wonderful things about God is God is never surprised. He is never surprised. Nothing happens in our lives. Nothing happens in this world. Nothing happens in this country. Nothing happens at the national level. Nothing happens in Israel. Nothing happens in Iran or any other place, any corner of the globe, that God doesn't already know what's going to take place. And so the Lord knew what was going on here, and he totally skips past their argument, their situation, and deals with something that in his mind, in his heart, is far more serious and dangerous than Pilate and Rome. What Jesus chooses to deal with is bad theology, bad ways of thinking about God that exist in the nation, and as leaders of the nation in the hearts of the people. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. See, in those times, and I'm afraid it's also true today, 
people kind of looked at life, especially, especially Israelites, the Jews living in Israel, they looked at life this way. They believed that bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Therefore, if something bad happens to somebody that you thought was good or is good, it means that they've done something bad and God is punishing them. And that's the issue that Jesus chooses to get to. Because in his mind, in his heart, that's far more serious than the political issue that's being presented to him, the trap that's being laid out for him. And so listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Oh, they weren't ready to talk about that. In some ways, that's what they thought. Yeah, they were worse sinners because look what happened to them. I mean, there must have been something really bad going on in their lives that that was allowed to happen to them. So on the one hand, they're angry about it, but on the other hand, theologically, they have to assume that something was really wrong with their lives. Jesus asks, is that why they suffered? And then he answers his own question. I love this. He goes, not at all. And then he looks at them and he says, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Wow. That didn't go over too well. Especially when you're feeling kind of smug and kind of self-righteous and basing your sense of righteousness and the fact that you're better than other people. And that's not what they really come to talk to Jesus about. Now he's starting to get under their skin. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever gone to a service, brought a friend or family, and just been praying, God, speak to them. They need to hear your voice. And then God goes, bullseye, right between your eyes, and you get gobsmacked. God surprises you. God astonishes you. God speaks to you. And Jesus doesn't let up. In fact, he pushes the accelerator down just a little bit further. And he takes up something from the headlines. And again, we're not sure exactly what this historical situation is because he doesn't give us details. And we don't necessarily have a record outside of what our Lord says here. But look what he says here. Verse 4. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Hey, with the way you guys think, let me ask you this. The headlines, it's in the Jerusalem Post. 18 men die. Tower falls in on them. It is possible, and I say it's only possible, that they were building that aqueduct. And in the area of Jerusalem called Siloam, it's very possible that there were 18 Jews at least contracted by the Roman government who were putting up that aqueduct, and at that particular place, that tower they were working on, fell in on them and they died. Now, the, the, the mindset and the speak would have been, oh, did you hear about those 18 guys? I can't believe what happened to them. You know, they all died. Well, the tower fell in on them. 
and killed them right there. You know, they had to be the worst sinners in Jerusalem. I just once in a while break into my Yiddish. And they died. Do you really believe they were the worst sinners in all of, of Israel? You know, uh, it's interesting how psychologically we view ourselves. I'm talking about all of us. And view ourselves in God's eyesight. It's interesting psychologically how we arrive at our sense of, of self-worth. Humanly speaking, the way we do that is to measure ourselves against the people sitting next to us, living next to us, driving next to us, in the work cubicle next to ours, in the desk next to ours. It doesn't matter whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. It is our human nature to determine our level of righteousness based on how we view everybody else around us. I mean, we do it oftentimes based on what side we're on. A lot of people see themselves as righteous if they see themselves on the right side. For instance, let's say Democrats, all right? A lot of people, you know, who are Democrats believe that what they stand for truly is justice. That they are on the right side and it's the Republicans and all the other folks that are driving this nation down the drain. And we've got to defeat them. Therefore, because I am a Democrat, I'm on the right side and I'm against those other folks. They're on the wrong side. And so I get a sense of righteousness. Just as those who are Republicans can easily think to themselves that they are on the right side. It's the Democrats and the others who are taking this nation down the tubes that are destroying this nation. And their, you know, their agenda is wrong and their philosophy is wrong. And we are right and we must stand together, especially those of us who are conservatives, because we're in the right. And, we, and so we rail against them and, and we get a feeling of righteousness out of that. Same thing is true on a national level. I mean... America, I love this country. We just celebrated the 4th of July. And our freedom, and truly this has been, and I, I don't know if it still is, but this has been one of the greatest nations on earth. And so much good has been done through America in the world. So much good has taken place. And I guess you could say compared to North Korea or compared to Iran, Oh my goodness, we are far more, we are, we are a righteous nation compared to them. But is being an American the same as being righteous? Does being American make us righteous? Actually, Marsha and I were watching the 4th of July fireworks uh, on television as they were being uh, sent off there in, in New York. I don't know if you saw, San Diego had a 4th of July fireworks show, and it all went up in 20 seconds. I don't know, some, something went wrong. I'm glad I wasn't the contractor, but uh, imagine all those people gathering for the big show and 20 seconds is done. Anyway, uh, so we're watching all this go off, and they got choreographed the music, right? And then all of a sudden comes the song, God Bless America. And I looked at Marsha with sadness, and I said, I don't think we can sing that right now. I mean, how can God bless a nation 
founded, I don't know if you guys saw, it was, I don't know what papers in Naperville Sun or whatever, the Hobby Lobby took out a whole ad. I don't know if any of you saw that in God We Trust and quoted, you know, for our Constitution, our church fathers, how this nation was founded on biblical Judeo-Christian principles. I mean, I was ready to go shopping. <laughs> but I want, to tell you, I want to tell you what, we've, we've turned it back on that. We're calling right, wrong, and wrong, right, and we are asking God to bring judgment. I don't have time this weekend, but if you keep looking down uh, past the passage we're looking at this weekend into verse 6 and on through verse 9, it says the axe is laid at the roots. And I believe not only was it laid at the roots of Israel, it's being laid at the roots of this nation as well. For the way we behave and the way that we've acted, being righteous is not about being on the right side. Being righteous is not about being a political party. Being righteous is not about belonging to a certain nation. That's not where righteousness comes from. Nor is righteousness my life compared to anybody else's life. And we do it all the time. Subconsciously, it's in our nature to look at how good I am. I've got to see how bad you are. Some funny ways that that happens. Realistic ways. It's happened to me. You know, like, like I love to work out at a gym. How many of you enjoy working out? Wow, I, I hope there are more hands going up at 95th because I tell you, at Hobson, there's only 10 people who like to work out. I'm just kidding, all right? I saw, I saw a fair number of hands. But, you know, you go to the gym and you work out, and I've always worked out, and you know, when you go in the gym to work out and, and, you're, and you're avid, you can't help but start comparing yourself to others. And it's hard for a guy like me as I'm getting older because a lot of the guys in there are young men. And I'm looking around and, you know, they're all uh, swelled up. I mean, their arms are bigger than my thighs. You know, they're big, they're huge, they're strong. And you can walk, you know, there are three ways you can deal with that. You can walk out of the gym going, man, am I a weakling. I am, I am just hopeless and nothing... Hey, it's over. I'm canceling my gym membership. Or you can walk out of the gym and you convince yourself, I'm going to get a trainer and, and, and I'm going to start eating lots of protein and I, I'm going to get just as big as those guys so that they'll walk in and look at me and go, oh, look how big he is. I'll get just as big. Or you can walk in and you can look at these people and you can say, they're on steroids. <laughs> no doubt about it. You can tell, puffiness in the eye, a few other signs. Use off the chemicals, he'd look weaker than me. I'd be stronger than him. You can tear him down to make yourself feel better. But women do the same thing. In fact, we know from studies that a lot of women struggle with their self-esteem, and they struggle because they're always comparing themselves to some other woman. Whether it's at the gym or at the mall or any other public place, they see another woman who looks good and you know, especially if, you know, as you're married and you're getting a little bit older and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder what my husband thinks about her. Does, does he think that she's better looking than me? Man, I just, I've, I'm losing it. I, I don't have it anymore. I'm just, I don't, I'm not good looking anymore. I'm ugly. I'm just, you know, and then comes the whole inferiority that, you know, poor me. Or, there, you know, there's other women who look at it and say, huh, I can look that hot too. I'm going shopping right now. All right? I'm, and I'm going to the salon, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a trainer, and I'm going to lose a lot of weight, and I'm going to get in shape, and I'm going to get those tight pants on, and I, I'll tell you what, I'll show them my stuff. <laughs> or the other way is to say, take the paint off that barn, you'll see how ugly it really is. 
Right, ladies? Uh-huh. And if I had, you know, if I could afford to have surgeries like those, yeah, I, I'd be hot too. Right? Take the surgeries away, take the paint out the bar, and she's uglier than me. I feel good. Right? I mean, that's what we do all the time. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus, we wake up and that is programmed into us to look at ourselves and to feel our righteousness based on contrasting and comparing ourselves to others. And if I can come out a little bit ahead of the other person, then I feel good about myself. But all of that, all of that is wrong. All of that is wrong. My righteousness does not come by comparing myself to anybody or being on a certain side or belonging to a certain political party or living in a certain nation. If I'm going to compare myself to anybody, then I need to compare myself to God. And man, I'm telling you what, there's nothing you can do at that point. Because none of us measure up to God, right? None of us do. That's why Paul says our righteousness, our attempt to measure up to God, oh my goodness, he says it's like filthy rags. So what makes me righteous? Nothing I can say, think, or do. I cannot make myself righteous. I cannot be less of a sinner than you. Nor can I be a worse sinner than you. We are all sinners. Where does our righteousness come from? Jesus says this passage, he says it again. He says, unless you repent, you too shall perish. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how bad you think you are, we're all on the same field. We're all standing eye to eye, toe to toe. Unless we all repent, we don't have a chance. I've got to repent of my self-righteousness. I've got to repent of my pride. I've got to repent of being a judgmental person. And I've got to embrace God's grace and forgiveness toward me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 30 or 31, he says in that passage, Christ has been made our righteousness. Christ is what makes me right. Isn't that beautiful? So where does your righteousness come from? You have none. I have none. Our righteousness is a standing that God gives us based on what his son has done for us. And in order for us to know that, we must repent of our self-righteousness, of our pride, of our sin, and embrace and accept Jesus and then learn to live out of the humility that comes with that. Recently, uh, I was... Uh, asked to meet with a Christian leader who has morally failed. And from a distance, I have been involved in the confrontation and restoration of this leader. For you inquiring minds, there's nobody at this church, okay? (laughs) And as I prepared to uh, have my face-to-face meeting with this individual who knew that I had been involved in working through the process... I got on my knees before God because I could feel pride back here crawling up my back. I've been married 32 years and been faithful to my wife. 
I've not been involved in a scandal of some sort to bring shame on my family, my God, and my church. And I got down on my knees and I said, God, as I go to talk to this person, God, I know I am no better than him. And it could be me. But for your grace. And as I go and see him and talk to him, and he's so broken, so repentant, as I go and see him and talk to him, the truth is, God, I am no more righteous than him. That what makes me righteous is what you've done for me. And what makes him righteous, though his sin has been horrendous and painful, what makes him righteous is not the fact that he has uh, not sinned, or what makes him unrighteous is not the fact that he did sin like that. What makes him righteous is the blood of Christ. And just as you can forgive me, you can forgive him. It's not about me. It's not about how good I am compared to anybody else. It's about how forgiving and merciful and graceful God has been. And I just wish that we together, I need to work on this too, I just wish that we together could learn to live out of the joy of the right standing that Jesus has given us before his Father. Instead of judging people, condemning people, beating people up, contrasting ourselves, trying to be like somebody else, let's just let Jesus be Jesus in us. Let's just rejoice in what he's done for us. Should we confront sin? Absolutely. But you better do it with an attitude and a spirit that I'm no better than you. It's by God's grace I haven't gone there, and I'm coming alongside of you because I don't want to... It hurts me to see you have failed, and, and I'm here to help pick you up so that if I fail, you'll help pick me up. But let's learn to live out of the richness of what God has done for us. Amen? Amen. Rejoice in that. If you're a believer here this weekend, I just declare to you, you are righteous. Because Christ lives in you. He makes you righteous. Let's pray. Father God, it is amazing how much energy we all spend trying to be good enough to please you. And God, there's not a thing we can do to earn your respect, to earn your admiration, to earn our salvation. Even as believers, God, though we know that in our minds and our hearts, we still every day expend so much energy trying to evaluate ourselves in comparison to others. God, forgive us. Father, We are worthless sinners saved by God's amazing grace. May we take that same energy and spend it in awe and worship of the God who would send his son to die for us, to love us and forgive us. Amazing grace. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen. Amen.